Today's reading is Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. This is God's word. Our Father, we know that every word of the scriptures is written for our good, for our understanding, and for our living. And Father, we need every word that's in the Scriptures. You don't waste your breath. So please help us understand this rightly. It seems such a distant issue, but help us please understand it rightly. Would your Spirit teach us? Would he convict us? Would he strengthen us to live this way for you and your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So clearly this evening we are looking at one of the most pressing issues for us as a church in the 21st century. Should we eat meat offered to an idol? Yeah. Now let's try that again, because that's not going to persuade you, is it, by any stretch of the imagination. What about the application of 1 Corinthians 8? Which I think you'll see is this. Will your, will our But will your decision-making be driven by your own desires or love for others? Ah, now that's a bit more of an issue, isn't it? When we take decisions, are we just going to do whatever we want? Or are we going to think first, 
what is the most loving course of action for the sake of others? Now, that's a bit more of an issue, isn't it, uh, that we face? I read over Christmas one book, Generation Me. It wasn't about me. Well, it probably was. It's a sociologist book just essentially saying that uh, in the 21st century, compared to 25 years ago, no, excuse me, 35 years ago in the 80s, we just are just culturally a lot more me, 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 a lot more self-absorbed. It's just the stats show it. We like to think about me. And um, I don't know about you, but I do think about me probably more than I think about you. And you're probably the same. You probably think about me. No, you don't do that. But it's all, um, or maybe you do. Maybe I'm self-absorbed. Maybe I'm, no, anyway, there we go, enough of that. But we're, sociologists would say, we're a narcissistic culture. And the stats prove it, whatever that may be. Uh, or just more prosaically, or empirically, on a Friday afternoon, I was trying to run away at this sermon, and up pops uh, an email from Oliver Bonus. I don't know why, presumably my wife has signed me into uh, an account uh, with them. I wasn't aware of subscribing to them. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the title to the email was, It's Time to Focus on You. The body of the email, anyone else get this? Anyone else willing to submit to being subscribed to Oliver Bonus? No, just me. Um, uh, you see, it's all about me. The, um, uh, the, the body of the email then, you spent far too long thinking about presents to buy for other people. It really is time to focus on you. And you think, well, okay, I guess that's marketing these days. But if you think, seriously, enough of, enough of other people, so Oliver Bonus, what about you? No, it's not particularly effective advertising for me because I'm not really interested in necklaces or handbags. I'm not tinky-winky. I don't um, care about such things. It's not the marketing that works for me. But culturally, that's the sort of advertising that goes out. We live in an age of entitlement. It's about me. What about my? What about me doing what I want to do? And so you come to 1 Corinthians 8, and the question again is, sharpen it, I guess, for 1 Corinthians 8, will your decision-making be driven by pleasing yourself or loving others? That's the issue. And Paul will say, you need to respect the convictions, the conscience of others, by giving up your freedom. Just so you know where we're going, it's verse 13, is the main application need to understand it rightly, but Paul will say, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, and this is, let me translate it literally, word for word from the Greek, it's a bit poncy thing to do, I know, but just so you get the gist of it, because he's very strong. If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never ever for all eternity eat meat again. That's actually what it says. So that I will not cause him to fall. If meat, now I want to understand this rightly, don't you? Because I like meat. And I had a nice roast today and I enjoyed it enormously and I want to have another one next week and actually I probably want to eat meat between now and next week. Um, So I want to understand this rightly. Because Paul says, if my eating meat causes anyone to sin, I will never ever for the whole of eternity eat meat again. I want to get this right and not get it wrong because I like my meat. Why don't I want to honour the Lord? Okay, we're back into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, we began that last week. And uh, we're spending a month then in chapters 8 to 10. It's a new question comes up. We've said all along that 1 Corinthians 
Uh, Paul is writing to a church that is being squeezed into the mold of the world. And he says, you don't want to be that. You want to be molded by Christ. You want to be like him, not shaped by the world. And you get a new question, really, comes up in uh, uh, this section 8 to 10. Uh, he says, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. That's always how he responds to their questions. Now about this issue you've raised. It's a new question. And really, the whole of chapters 8 to 10 are about how you use your freedom in decision-making. So tonight, chapter 8, your decisions should be driven by, chapter 8, how they impact other Christians. Your decisions should be, dri- should be driven, chapter 9, by how they impact those who are not Christians. Chapter 10, by how they impact your own godliness. And the second half of chapter 10, how they impact the glory of God. All about how you make decisions in chapters 8 to 10. So it may seem a very distant issue, what do we do with meat? But that's the sort of application throughout this section. Now just to be clear, how do you make decisions where the Bible is neutral or gives you freedom? There are lots of questions the Bible answers very clearly. Should I rob a bank? No. There is no freedom in that issue. No, you should not rob a bank. Should I murder my boss? No. There is no freedom in that sort of issue. Should I take a new job or stay where I am? You're free. But you should think about the impact upon other Christians, the impact upon those who aren't yet Christians, your own godliness and the glory of God. Those four, week by week, will take one in turn. You should think about those things when you make decisions. Should I go on a lad's weekend away to Vegas or not? Well, you're free. It's not a sin to do that. But what impact would it have upon other Christians, on those who are not Christians, on your own godliness and the glory of God? Those four. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Where the Bible is not explicit and you have freedom, what should drive your decision making? Chapter 8 then is the impact that your decisions will have on other Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, it may be interesting for you to listen in to understand this. But that is the issue. Now, the presenting case in Corinth, well... Let me just make a few comments on the background before we get into the detail. Should we eat meat sacrificed to an idol? To my knowledge, that has never been an issue here yet at CCM. We have never had the crudite warriors objecting to the consumption of salami by anyone in church or anything like it. If you are, you know, that will maybe in time, but we've never had that as of yet. So what is going on here? Well, the issue in Corinth... Christians, some Christians, are eating meat which has been sacrificed to a god. Zeus, Poseidon, Diana, whoever it may be. And some Christians think that's fine. And some think that's wrong, sinful. Now we'll get to how Paul deals with it, but that's what's going on. Now why is that an issue? Well, I guess in the culture of the time, meat is a bit more of a rarity. I guess there are some people uh, here who have meat every day of the week. That would have been pretty rare. It's just a bit more expensive uh, in those days. If you refused to eat meat in that culture, there is a very real cost. In a way, there isn't. You can get tasty, non-meaty foods today. Um, That's not the issue, is it? uh, But there's a cost both in your work and socially. 
In Corinth at that time, it's very obvious architecturally, archaeology, all the, all, the, all the resources will tell you. In Corinth at that time, most of the temples, and there are hundreds of temples to different gods, would have a dining room attached to them. And often that's where business was done. So it may be that if you were, let's modernize it slightly, if you were a a, a chartered surveyor, you always did your business with the other chartered surveyors in the temple to Poseidon, in the cafe attached. So say you think that's wrong. I've become a Christian. I mustn't eat meat at sacrifice to the god Poseidon. Now what do you do? You can't go and do your business. So there's a very real cost there. It costs you in business terms. It costs your company. And socially as well. Uh, Often wedding receptions will be held in these uh, dining rooms attached to the temples. So you might say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come to your wedding. Well, that's awkward. And then just in society, you may get invited for dinner at someone's house. And we get to this, I guess, later on in in chapter 10. You, You go for dinner at someone's house in Corinth, and you think eating meat offered to idols is wrong, and out comes the the beef joint, and you have to ask, was this, was this offered to a god before it was killed? Yes, it was. Uh, we bought it at Zeus's temple. Well, I can't eat that, I'm afraid. Awkward, a bit awkward. So th- there is a cost to saying, I won't eat meat. That's the little backdrop to this. It's just to give you a hint of where we're going to go then, so what? So what? Well, I guess the application to us will look a bit like this. For Christians... What are the issues today in the 21st century where the Bible doesn't comment and Christians are free to make up their minds, but they disagree? And there's a certain, perhaps, career or social cost to them. Slight caricature, but let me describe it as Eastern and Western issues. Forgive me for this, this is is lazy, but let me put it in this way. There are some obvious and perhaps more obvious Eastern issues. If in parts of China, Japan, you become a Christian and your family engages in ancestor worship and you think, oh, I don't know, I shouldn't do that anymore. I shouldn't worship my ancestors as a Christian. There's going to be a cost if when you go home to the family and they say, right, now it's time to worship great-great-great-grandfather and you say, I can't as a Christian. You're not going to be popular with your family. There's a very real cost to that. And there are some here who have known that issue, that particular issue, and it's painful within the family. That's a common one, I think, sort of Eastern issue. What about Western issues? A bit different, but what about things such as consumption of alcohol? There are some Christians who say, I won't drink. I've just resolved to be teetotal. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? It's awkward in the office. Not in the office, hopefully, not at 11 a.m. But um, uh, you go for a dr- client drinks, it's a little bit awkward. Um, social activities after work, it's a little bit awkward. What about, I don't know, frequenting certain clubs? Some things get quirky and Christians get upset about yoga. Some Christians think, Whoa, don't do yoga, it's a terrible thing. Others think, well, what's your problem? It's absolutely fine. What about consumption of material goods. Some Christians are quite ascetic on that. Uh, and others think, nah, it's fine to be extravagant and flash out on luxuries. And that can cause tensions. It's, it's going to be those sort of things. The Bible is not explicit. You have freedom. How are you going to use your freedom? 
for yourself or to love others? That's the issue we're looking at. Okay, let's have a go. Let's have a go then at uh, chapter 8. And uh, there's a slightly lengthy outline, but um, hopefully that'll uh, help us walk it through quite quickly. First thing, verses 1 to 3. Look, here's the headline issue. And the rest is application, or the the rest is details, excuse me. Here's the headline issue. Love matters more than knowledge. Verses 1 to 3. Love matters more than knowledge. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols. So Paul is responding to a question they've written to him on. Now about this question. We know that we all possess knowledge. I think he's quoting them back. As the footnote has it, you could equally translate it. As you say, we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So they say, now what about this issue of food being sacrificed to idols? Because lots of us think it's fine. What should we do about that? Paul says, look, here's the important thing. Knowledge is great. But love is more important in this issue. You don't want to trade them off against one another. It's knowledge in relation to meat and idols, specifically he's talking about here. Don't don't think that Paul is anti-knowledge. Knowledge is very good. You can see this a number of times. Just flick over a page, chapter 10, verse 1. I, chapter 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be ignorant of uh, uh, the fact that of your Old Testament history. Knowledge is good. Or you, you get it throughout the letter, chapter 12, verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. This is a carefully reasoned letter. He wants them to know the Bible. He wants them to know what Jesus teaches. Paul is not anti-knowledge, but he's anti-knowledge which is used lovelessly and selfishly. That's the issue. To my mind, chapter one is, I have this vivid picture in my head. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This may just be me, but I have, I have a picture in my head when I read that of knowledge can be just like a very massive whoopee cushion. You just, you just puff it up. Love is like steel reinforced concrete. And you try and stand on knowledge, and it just goes, and it's pretty useless. And you stand on a steel-reinforced concrete, and it's solid. Maybe it doesn't work for you. That's what I have in my head. One thing just puffs up in a fairly useless way, unless it's allied to love, where you can build upon. Verse 2, the man who thinks he knows something, yet doesn't yet, excuse me, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Oh, if you just say, I know this about the Bible, but don't love people, you know nothing. It's really what he's saying. You think you're hot stuff with the amount of Bible you know, but if you don't know to love people, you haven't conquered ABC in the Christian life. It doesn't work. And actually, what's the most important knowledge? Verse 3. The man who loves God is known by God. So the man who thinks he knows something doesn't yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Do you know what the most important knowing is, says Paul? It isn't the knowledge that you have. It isn't all your biblical understanding. Far more important is that God knows you. God knows you, i.e. you're a Christian, is far more important than everything you know. That's what he said. Just so we're clear on what knowledge matters. 
he says. I don't care, says Paul, if you've got a PhD or two PhDs or more. Does God know you? My father-in-law is a terrific man. He's a very able man. He does appear to have more letters after his name than in his name. And his name's a silly name. It's Frank Haynes Nutt, double-barreled, which is nouveau riche sort of nonsense. But um, uh, I, can, I love him. He's not going to listen to this either. Um, my wife was delighted to trade that for Fuller. That's a good trade. But um, it's quite a long name, a decent length name. It's not like he's Joe blogs. That's good. But Frank Hainstein, he's got more letters after his name. He does manage to have two PhDs. I mean, what's, what's the point of that? The, um, uh, you can tell me afterwards. Having two. One is good. One is good. One is good. Those who've got one, two. You're just showing off, aren't you? Um, but he's a Christian man. And he would say, oh, all my letters are meaningless compared to the fact that I'm known by God. It matters far, far more. And it's true. Biblical knowledge as well it matters much more. When we planted this church 15 years ago next week, it's our crystal anniversary next week. Crystal's a bit feeble, isn't it? But anyway, 15 years, good thing. But uh, when we planted this church 15 years ago, uh, I remember uh, just as we were beginning, I went to see the, the head of UCCF in London at the time, uh, the, the, the Christian student the student Christian movement, uh, their London uh, uh, boss at the time, to chat about uh, Imperial College and lunchtime talks at Imperial College, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I knew him a little bit, so he was uh, honest with me, uh, perhaps to the point of indiscretion. And don't, I won't tell you which, but he said something when I met 15 years ago that I'll never forget and has haunted me ever since. He said, the students from Church X know their Bibles infinitely better than any other church in London. But they are so arrogant, no one will ever listen to them, and they do absolutely no good to anyone else. Ouch. Look, don't daydream, or I wonder who it was. It was 15 years ago, that was then. They're probably very different now, even if they're still going as a church. Don't day... Ouch. What a miserable thing to be said of you. They know their Bibles back to front, but they're so cocky and arrogant with their knowledge that they never, they're no good to anyone else. They don't love anyone with it. Ouch. We do want biblical knowledge. Uh, in my, part of my prayer, every Thursday morning, I pray for Christchurch Mayfair that we have rich and growing theological knowledge. I pray that for the church every Thursday morning. Every Monday morning, I pray that we're a church that loves one another. There are other things in between and after. But actually, that is the first thing in my week that I want to pray for us as a church. Because unless that commitment's in place. All the knowledge in the world can be, well, it can just be damaging. Love matters more than knowledge. Okay, what's going on then? So what about all this meat stuff? Okay, we're going to say this. Idols aren't real, verses 4 to 6. Some think the idols are real, 7 to 8. Don't you destroy those people, uh, 9 to 12. In fact, give up anything for those Christians. Okay, let's punch through it. Okay, so then, about the particular question, verses 4 to 6, idols are not real. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. 
we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So Paul agrees with the knowledgeable lot. Zeus, Poseidon, Artemis, they're not real. They don't really exist. Allah, Krishna, Rama, they're not real. They don't exist. Verse 5, yes, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through whom we live. There's one God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is not the God that any other religion has. He's the only real God. And tonight, I I don't want to cause offense, but if you're here from another religious background, I just hope we can respect one another to say we disagree. And as a Christian, I have to say, the Bible tells me there's one God and all the rest are make-believe. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Idols are not real. Let's politely discuss it. You probably disagree with me if you're from another religious background. I know we can talk about that. But just that's what Paul is telling us here. Idols are not real. But verses seven to eight, some Christians think they are. Verse seven, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So here's someone who's been converted out of a pagan background. So perhaps Marcus, um, he's the sort of inhabitant of, um, of Corinth. Uh, Marcus has been a pagan for 30 years. For 30 years of his life, he's gone and slaughtered animals at Poseidon's temple and offered sacrifices to Poseidon. Now he's become a Christian. And now he thinks, I can't do that anymore. Because I've turned my back on that way of life, I will not be involved in the sacrifice of meat. And I kind of think that eating meat offered to Poseidon or any god is a blasphemy. I can't do it. Now, Paul would say, look, he's wrong. It's okay for him to do that. But that's not what he thinks. He thinks it will be offensive to God to eat that meat. So his conscience is tender or weak as Paul puts it. So you can imagine, this is sort of, maybe you can't, but here's the scenario. Uh, Marcus is uh, due to meet a client, uh, and, and they meet up for coffee, and then the client says, I tell you what, let's conclude this, be- this deal uh, over a kebab at Poseidon's Grill. And Marcus says, oh, I'd like to com- complete the deal, but I, I don't want to go to Poseidon's Grill. Come on, I, I, I never sign a deal unless I'm eating a kebab, uh, says his client. Well... Well, I can't do that, says Marcus. That was my old way of life, and I don't want to do that now. And so he walks away from the deal. That's costly. You know, I know that doesn't really happen. Now, but that's the scenario back then, okay? Unless he thinks to himself, oh, do you know what? I've just got to have this deal. So he goes, and he has a kebab in Poseidon's grill, even though he thinks it's offensive to the Lord. Now, what's he doing at that point? He's saying, this financial transaction is more important than my love of the Lord. I know what I'm doing here is wrong, but I've got to do it for the cash. So at that moment in time, he has defiled his conscience. 
He's done what he knows is wrong in his head. So as Paul summarizes it here, look, verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. The food is irrelevant. The problem is not what food does to us, but what we might do with some food. If you're Marcus and think that eating a kebab at Poseidon's diner is wrong and you do it, you're going against your conscience. You shouldn't do that. Idols are not real. Some Christians think they are, and therefore they shouldn't eat this meat. So, verses 9 to 12... Don't you destroy those Christians. Verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? The striking thing, Paul never tries to change their mind. He never says, look, you think you can't eat meat offered to an idol? You can. You can do what you want. You're free. It's not interested in that. All his application are to those who know they're free, but are causing others to stumble. His application is to those who've got their theology accurate. He says, don't cause those who've got a weak conscience to stumble. You go back to Marcus. Marcus does the right thing by his conscience. He says, no, I can't eat a kebab at Poseidon's diner. I think eating a kebab at Poseidon's place will be offensive to Jesus Christ. And the client is grumpy and says, you're a muppet, you're an idiot, and storms off and doesn't get the deal. The next day, Marcus sees a group from church eating kebabs at Poseidon's and thinks, how can they do that? How can they do that? Why am I the only one who, I've lost a client, I've lost a deal, because I won't do that. All the other Christians go and eat meat there. I, in my own head, I know it's wrong, I know it's offensive to Jesus, but I'm not going to miss out. Even though it's offensive to Jesus, I'm not going to be the only Christian who goes without. And so what happens? You who know that you're free, become a stumbling block, verse 9, to the weak. If anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Ouch! There's a Christian that Christ died for, gave his life for, and you won't even give up a kebab for. You know that if he sees you there, he'll find that upsetting and and bewildering and and may do what goes against his conscience. You won't give up a kebab for him when Jesus died for him? How selfish are you? Ouch. Verse 11, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Ouch. Idols aren't real. Some Christians think they are. Don't you harm them. Don't you destroy them. But rather, verse 13, give up anything for them. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never ever for the whole of eternity eat meat again, 
so that I will not cause him to fall. Wow. I would rather become an, a vegetarian than offend the conscience of another Christian. But, 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 doesn't everything in you want to cry out? But you're okay, you can eat meat. There's nothing wrong with eating meat. Eat as much meat as you like. Jesus has died for you, you're free. The Bible says eat meat. Meat is good, meat is lovely. Meat is, mmm, I love meat. Why would I go without meat when the other bloke's wrong? He can eat meat, for goodness sake. Why is he, I've got to go without meat just because he's wrong theologically? Yes. Yes. Don't you harm them. Give up anything if it's going to harm them. Just give it up. It's far more important. Let me try and draw three little conclusions, then we're done. One, don't do, when it comes to decision-making, don't do anything unbiblical. Should I sleep with my boyfriend, my girlfriend when we're not married? No, there is no freedom. Don't do it. Stop it. Oh, yeah, but look, you've just got a weak conscience and you think, the, you think you shouldn't do that. I've got a strong conscience. Jesus forgives me for everything. No. Bible is clear. Do what Bible says. End of discussion. End of conversation. Okay? Well, you might have a nicer, polite conversation than that. You don't need to be quite so rude uh, and monosyllabic about it. No. When the Bible is clear, you just obey the Scriptures. Two. If you are of tender conscience... That is, there's some issue of freedom, but you have made a decision to refrain from any an activity, from a substance. Stick with your conscience. Don't do anything that you believe to be wrong. And so even though there's enormous freedom, I know, that I know some here who have become Christians and said, that's it, I'm not drinking again. Because before I was a Christian, I was just... Committed, addicted to alcohol, it got me into bad places, I did stupid things. I've become a Christian, I've now resolved not to drink again. They're free. Don't go against your conscience. If you've decided to do that, good for you, stick with it. Some have resolved, look, because of the associations with my former way of life, now I've become a Christian, I'm not going clubbing again. Just because I can't, I just think clubbing, I think drugs, I, and I, I just can't disassociate those two things. You're free, there's nothing wrong with going to a nightclub, but if you've resolved to do that, stick with your conscience. Some have said, I'm not going to watch that program, I'm not going to watch whatever it is, Game of Thrones, I find it unhelpful, I'm just not going to do it. You're free, there's no rule in the Bible on that, but if you've resolved to do that, stick with your conscience. And just because other Christians think differently with you, stick with your conscience. If you've, made a res uh, a res if you've resolved to live in a certain way because of your reverence for Christ, stick with your conscience. Stick with it. But the application and the majority of it is for those who have good theology and tough consciences. So what do you do? Let's take a couple of examples. Dot. There's, to my knowledge, no dot amongst us. I think we're safe. Dot. Dot was a seriously heavy drinker before she became a Christian. And so Dot has resolved not to drink now alcohol, not to drink alcohol as a believer. You, your job is not to persuade Dot that she's wrong. Your job is not to say to Dot, why don't you have a drink? You're free. There's nothing. That is not your job. That's not required of you. You don't need to do that. Your job is to help her to love her. 
So there's a gang of uh, six of you, and you say, who's going to the pub? No, you don't do that. There's a gang of six of you, and you say, who's going to the Cafe Nero dot? Who's coming to Cafe Nero? That's what you do, because you love her. And otherwise, you'd exclude her. Or Rick. Rick was an obsessive, different issue. Rick was an obsessive materialist. So before he became a Christian, he earned a good salary, and he, went, he just had the best of everything. He went on extravagant holidays, had extravagant clothes, went to fine restaurants. He become a Christian and thinks, no, I must live a more simple life. That was just wildly out of whack. And I'm now going to live a simple life. I, I'm going to avoid all luxury. Your job is not to persuade Rick. It's fine. Give yourself a treat every now and again. That's not your job. Your job is to love him. And so someone comes along and says, or perhaps you propose, you propose a gang, let's go on holiday for a week. And people say, yeah, that'd be nice. You say, let's all go skiing in Whistler. Okay, how much is that going to cost? Oh, you know, about 1,800 pounds each. Um, and you think, oh, Robert, nice. The um, 1,800 pounds each. And then you see Rick is there, and you think, oh, quite good if Rick came. So let's all go for a week camping in Bognor on holiday together. That's love. Okay, there's quite a big difference between those two. You could probably find something halfway in between. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. But you see, the point is, you, your job is not to change their mind. Your job is not to teach them theology. Your, your job there is to love them. Okay? Part one. How do you make decisions where the Bible is silent or quiet and you have freedom? Issue one, you make decisions not on what you desire, but on loving others. That is very counterintuitive. To think that way. But that is the savior we follow. Before the creation of the world, Jesus could happily be there with his father and the spirit and say, that's good life here, isn't it? I enjoy this life. I am free to do whatever I want. I am free to enjoy the glory of heaven and enjoy the riches here. But I will not think of me. I'll think of them. Didn't just give up meat so that we didn't stumble. He gave up his life so that we might become brothers and sisters. You and I think, I wouldn't give up meat for the sake of someone else when I don't have to. How wonderful Jesus gives up his life. For none of us, he didn't have to. This is not instinctive to us. So we have to look to him, who gave up everything. When you're making decisions, it's not about what you want. It is about what's best for others, says Paul. I'd give up meat forever. It's a high standard, isn't it? Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, the issue of whether to eat meat or not seems very far from us here. But the issue of making decisions out of love for others rather than for ourselves that's acute. 
that is an issue we face in the small details of life all the time. And we pray very much that as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be willing, like him, to give up freedom in order to love others. We ask it in his name. Amen.